service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about stuntman Evil Knievel are insane. He found unlikely fame in the 1970s when his death-defying motorcycle jumps became a regular fixture on television. He jumped over cars, sharks, and canyons. And those jumps often resulted in near-fatal crashes. And as a result, he broke and rebroke just about every single bone in his body. He also had one of the most extensive criminal histories of any professional athlete. He was a burglar, a safecracker, a card sheet, a con man. And when Evil Knievel felt like he had something to prove, he would do what he had to do to prove it, even if that meant doing it with the blunt force of an aluminum baseball bat. Evil Knievel was involved in some of the greatest and scariest sports moments of all time. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Waltzing on Air MK. Two, I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights from CBS to a broadcast of the NFL championship game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Green Bay Packers. And why would I play you that specific slice of ice bowl cheese could I afford it? Because that was the biggest sporting event in the country on December 31st, 1967. And that was the day that Evil Knievel became an overnight sensation when he attempted on his motorcycle to jump the fountains at Caesar's Palace. On this episode, stunts, sharks, cons, blunt forces, ice bowl cheese, and evil Knievel. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season two, Sportsland. Just who was Evil Knievel praying to when he was riding his trusty Triumph T120 motorcycle 15 feet in the air, attempting to make it safely to the other side of the 141-foot jump over the fountains at Caesar's Palace? It wasn't God. Evil Knievel didn't believe in God. December 31st, 1967. What Evil Knievel did believe in was luck. Bad luck and good luck which is why just minutes earlier on his heroic walk from inside Caesar's palace to the fountains outside, where his Triumph motorcycle awaited its daredevil captain to boldly take it where no man had taken it before, Evil Knievel placed a $100 bet on red. The roulette wheel spun. The ball clicked along the pockets of the wheel. And the ball hit black. Little shit, he thought. As far as omens went, he had to admit, this one was pretty bad. Black. To drown the specter of bad luck, Evil ordered a Montana Mary. That's a beer spiked with tomato juice and wild turkey. And he then zipped up his red, white, and blue leather jacket and put his helmet on. The one painted red, white, and blue to match, of course, and that read Evil on the front. Even if it was so scratched and dented that you could hardly read it. He knocked the Montana Mary back in one gulp, slammed the tumbler down onto the table, 
and strode out of the casino like the big-dicked hero in his own movie that he goddamn sure as shit saw himself as. He made certain the actual cameras were rolling as well. He was no dummy. He knew that if his jump was successful, the local ABC affiliate television crew on the scene would share their footage with the more popular national ABC program, Wide World of Sports, which was watched by kids all over the country. And goddamn, what if the footage made it into the show's series opening montage? Hopefully with Wide World of Sports commentator Jim McKay saying, the thrill of victory instead of the agony of defeat. Evil Knievel continued his walk out of the casino and fired up his bike. It was time to make history. He tickled the carburetor, pulled the clutch, and then brought his right foot down on the kickstart. The bike's engine rumbled and barked each time Evil goosed the throttle. Evil raced up the takeoff ramp. He gained steam on Caesar's fountains and approached liftoff. The bike's handlebars trembled and reverberated through his hands up his arms to his shoulders and kissed the tension in his neck. He was doing close to 90 miles per hour on the Triumph when he caught air at the end of the ramp. The crowd gasped because they realized what Evil Knievel would also realize in a split second's time, that his triumph was, alas, not going to triumph. 141 feet, that's a long way to jump. And so, again, who was Evil Knievel praying to in that moment suspended above the Nevada desert in plain view of New Year's Eve traffic on the strip? When he knew he didn't have the height, when he knew he didn't have the velocity, didn't have the physics or calisthenics or whatever the hellix it was that calculated time, rate, distance, and all that other scientific hooey that eluded him. Who was Evil Knievel praying to in that moment when he knew he was going to crash? Whoever it was, they either weren't listening or they didn't care. Evil Knievel fell hard from the sky. He hit the safety ramp, the one they placed on top of an old van to make sure he didn't decapitate himself if he crashed. And crash, he did. The fall threw him across the tarmac like a ragdoll. His pelvis and femur were crushed. Both of his ankles, one wrist, and one hip were broken. His head trauma, massive. Evil Knievel spent the next month in the hospital. He was lucky to be alive. And he found more good luck when the local ABC affiliate's footage of his jump made its way, as he had hoped, to wide world of sports and primetime television. Viewers all over the country were glued to the screen every time it came on. They picked up their phones and called their friends, and their friends then called their friends, and so on. Put on Channel 5, it's on, you're not going to believe this shit. At 1968, Evil Knievel had become a household name. His Vegas jump was heroic. His failure was exhilarating. Some saw a daring athlete reaching for the stars. Others saw a proto-jackass stunt worthy of about 23 repeat viewings, each one funnier than the last. Evil Knievel had gone viral in a pre-viral world. But what America didn't know was that the 29-year-old daredevil with the unforgettable name had achieved his moment by pulling off a smooth con on the casino brass. Evil Knievel wasn't just a stuntman. He was a grifter, a hustler. He had been ever since he was a little boy in Butte, Montana, stealing tires off cars and then reselling them to their unsuspecting owners. Little did they know that the replacement tire they'd just purchased was the actual tire Evil Knievel had stolen from them in the first place. And that's just how he landed the gig at Caesar's Palace. To secure the jump that would cement his name in American consciousness, Evil pulled off a multi-personality con over the telephone. First, in the fall of 1967, 
He called Las Vegas news stations and told them all about the daring motorcycle jump that he, Evil Knievel, that's E-V-E-L, was planning. A stunt for the ages. He invited them to come out and cover it. Never mind that the event wasn't even a real thing at that point. There was no jump even planned. Not at Caesar's Palace, not over their fountains, not elsewhere on the Strip, not anywhere. Yet. Next, Evil started calling Caesar's Palace repeatedly, and every time he'd speak in a different voice and tell the employee on the other end of the phone how excited he was to see this Evil Knievel character jump the fountains at the casino. When was it happening? How much were tickets? Jumping the fountains? Evil who? No one at Caesar's knew what the callers were talking about. Word made its way to the top floor to Jay Cerno, Caesar's founder and owner. He was confused. And then one day, Jay Cerno's phone rang. And the voice on the other end was fired up from the get-go. Say, listen here, Jay, this is Jack Daniels of Daniels and Daniels. We represent Evil Knievel. My firm has been flooded with calls about my client jumping the fountains in his motorcycle at your casino. But our client never agreed to do any such thing. And now I'm wondering if we ought to sue your ass for improper use of my client's name to promote your business. Shit, man, you've been tossing around the name Evil Knievel without permission for weeks. Jay Sarno had no idea that Jack Daniels didn't exist. Neither did the law firm of Daniels and Daniels. Jay Sarno had no idea that he was being scammed by none other than this Evil Knievel character himself. Playing the litigious role of Jack Daniels, Evil got Jay Sarno to believe that Caesars had been illegally promoting an improbable motorcycle stunt. And furthermore, Evil got Jay Sarno to believe that he was about to be slapped with a lawsuit and that in order to avoid said lawsuit, he had to agree to work something out. So Jay Sarno did just that, worked something out with Evil Knievel himself, in person. $4,500 for a planned three jumps at Caesar's Palace, complimentary room, plus food and drinks on the house. And it all happened because of a con. That's all it was. Short games, long games, robberies, hustles that didn't even look like hustles until Evil Knievel was out the door and long gone. Back in the day, Evil Knievel's cons didn't make him the number one daredevil in the country, but they did make him a number one suspect for local law enforcement. These days, though, the risks were greater than getting collared by local law enforcement because there were only so many bones that one man could break and only so many prayers that could go unanswered. can't con a con man. That's a direct quote from Evil Knievel himself, or should I say Robert Craig Knievel, which is what his mother called him. The nickname, Evil, came later. The cons, however, they came first. So did the juvenile delinquency in Butte, Montana, where even as a teen, Evil Knievel became intimately acquainted with the inside of city jails, county jails, and state prisons. As a father in his early 20s, with three young children and fewer prospects, the stakes were high. The family needed dough, and Evil's cons were key. He pocketed thousands of dollars cheating at cards. He ran insurance scams. He started a guide service to hunt big game, but that service crashed and burned when it was discovered that Evil Knievel was illegally using Yellowstone National Park as his client's hunting ground. He started a semi-pro hockey club called the Butte Bombers and convinced the 1960 Czechoslovakian Olympic team to play them in a warm-up match. Evil Knievel was ejected in the third period. He left in a huff. After the game, the Czech officials went to collect their cut from the box office only to find that all the money was gone, along 
with Evil Knievel. And anytime anyone wanted to start beef with Evil, if they wanted to accuse him of stealing or scamming or hustling, they're always more than welcome to take it up with his 44 Magnum. But Evil Knievel's most tried and true scam utilized all of his talents, his con artistry, his fearlessness, and his brute force. Moses Lake, Washington, 1963. Evil Knievel had his mark, another of the town's local businesses. He paid them a visit during operating hours. Inside, his eyes wandered within the office until he located the safe. Then he asked to speak with the owner. He told the owner that he was a local insurance man, and what he meant by quote-unquote insurance was really quote-unquote protection. Because, as Evil would point out in the conversation with a wink of his eye, there had been a rash of robberies lately. Moses Lake really was going to shit, didn't you know? And the last thing that this fine establishment wanted to happen to it was to fall victim of whatever smash and grab gang had the town by the balls. Evil left out the part that the local smash and grab gang was actually himself, just him. So as Evil cleared his throat, he asked the local business owner, did this here fine establishment need any quote unquote insurance? And the business owner, like the one the day before and the day before that, didn't take kindly to cold call sales pitches from low key muscle or protection. And furthermore, the business owner didn't particularly like the implication that his business was on some supposed hustler's hit list. He pointed to the no solicitation sign near the front of the door, and he told Evil Knievel to get the hell out. And so, partly to get back at the testy store owner for tossing him out on his ass, and partly to get that same business owner to pay for his protection, and partly to scrounge up some more scratch to provide for his family, Evil Knievel went back to the store that night, cut through the roof, and cracked the safe. Crack is the operative word because you don't pick a safe. You either beat it to shit or you blow it to hell. And on this night, Evil Knievel waited until it was dark. He quietly placed the stepladder against the side of the building, slung the bag of tools over his shoulder and worked his way up on the roof. And the way he usually did this was to peel up the sunburnt tar paper and cut a man-sized square hole in the roof. But today was his lucky day. When he cased the place earlier, he'd noticed a skylight in the ceiling. And that's how he made his way in. Up on the roof, he pulled a screwdriver and a crowbar from his tool bag and liberated the skylight from the roof's surface. And then he grabbed his long braided rope, wound one end around a nearby rooftop air conditioner, tied a double figure eight knot, gave it a tug and dropped the rope through the hole where the skylight had been. He'd barely been able to fit the winch in the tool bag, but it came in handy to pull the safe up through the skylight hole. He scurried down off the roof and brought the safe to the edge of town out by the sand dunes. First, he tried to beat the dial off with a hammer, but the safe was too tough. Next, he found his brace and bit in the tool bag and tried to drill a hole through the safe's wall, just big enough to slide a stick of dynamite through. He did that for a few minutes before he became agitated with his lack of progress. The bit wasn't doing the job. Fuck it, he thought, and stuck two sticks of dynamite under the safe and lit the fuse and got the hell out of there. He managed to run far enough away to avoid injury when the dynamite went off and the safe was blown up high into the air. Jesus, what a sight, Evil thought, as he watched the safe soar through the sky. He couldn't wait to get his hands on whatever was inside. But when the safe came crashing down, it didn't land on solid ground. Miraculously, it found a sinkhole. The sand dunes in Moses Lake were littered with sinkholes, and they were everywhere. Evil watched in disbelief as the safe he'd just blown up made its quick descent into the maw of the earth and out of his reach. It was true what they said confirmed right here. Crime did not pay. And it was confirmed elsewhere as well. 
Every time Evil Knievel made any progress in life, he suffered an even bigger setback. One step forward and two steps back. And it didn't matter if you moved to another town or another state. The things he'd done in the towns and states before followed him everywhere he went. And so too did the cops. They followed him back in 1956 in Butte when he tore ass around town on a motorcycle and dared them to catch him. That was one of the first crashes. It wasn't one of his deadliest crashes, but you know, you never forget your first. The cops were following him again now in 1963 as he put a Pontiac Bonneville to the ultimate test. He figured he was doing 125, and that was his best guess. Seeing as his speedometer only went to 120, the needle was buried right beyond that final notch. The Bonneville rattled like it was going to explode any minute, just like that safe out at the sand dunes. And the cops were dogged in the pursuit. Every time they'd gain on evil, he'd dare where they would doubt. He'd push the Bonneville through the curves in the road when the cops would pull back on their ignition to avoid driving off the road. They'd gain again on the next straightaway, but by the next curve, he'd put more road between them and thus the cat and mouse game resumed. The pursuit went on for hours. Evil eventually lost the cops altogether. But where was the fun in that? He slowed down and let them back into the hunt, just so he could lose them again. And the cops didn't scare Evil Knievel. Crashing didn't scare Evil Knievel. Getting arrested didn't scare Evil Knievel. Nothing scared Evil Knievel, not even death. There was no God, so that meant there was no devil either. He led the cops across four state lines, Washington, Oregon, Montana, Idaho. He didn't even know where he was anymore. The road ahead just kept coming up at him, fast. The horizon spit more asphalt in his direction, like paper strewn from one of those old adding machines. The road seared his eyes in plumes of dust and gasped with light. His synapses fired and he caught whiff of another endorphin in flames. It smelled like the bang pops he used to throw on the ground as a kid. The Bonneville rattled so loud it sounded like it might explode. Evil knew he had pressed his luck far enough. Somewhere down the line, there would be a stop sign, a dead end, a traffic light. The open road would eventually close up on him and then he'd be right back where he started, up Shit Creek without a paddle. He needed to pull the Bonneville over, surrender to the cops, and then make a solemn promise that he would quit this life of crime once and for all and never look back. Not that he wouldn't pull cons anymore, because you can't con a con man after all. But Evil Knievel would find a new way to con people. Con them on the up and up, in a way that would give them the same thrill he got when racing down the road in a high-speed chase across state lines. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Evil Knievel jumped the shark before jumping the shark had, well, jumped the shark. He also jumped over rattlesnakes and mountain lions. He jumped pickup trucks and Pepsi trucks and beer trucks and Greyhound buses. He jumped over piles of cars and even more sharks. And he did it years before that acting coach from HBO's Barry donned his white tee and leather jacket. In the years since, Evil Knievel had made a promise to go legit and put his criminal past behind him. He had found commercial success by literally creating his own niche as a motorcycle stuntman. He wasn't the only guy jumping over stuff in a motorcycle, but he was the first to popularize it and he endeavored to be the best, or more accurately, the craziest. The best was good for business cards. The craziest sold tickets. Hence the diversification of exactly what he jumped over. If he'd learned anything from the botched Caesar's Palace jump, it was that the novelty of the fountains underneath the rumbling frame of his motorcycle was a big part of the draw. It was the weirdness of the whole thing. And so, to get weirder and crazier, Evil even diversified what he rode on. 
He planned to make his jump across the Snake River Canyon in southern Idaho in a custom-built steam-powered rocket called the Skycicle X-2. In 1974, Snake River Canyon was Evil's most daring daredevil attempt to date. He planned it as a consolation jump of sorts after it became clear that the federal government would not honor Evil's request to jump the Grand Canyon. Hold up, let's just appreciate that for a minute. The dude wanted to jump the Grand Canyon. But at Snake River Canyon, before the skycicle had even reached its peak in the air, however, the parachute deployed prematurely. Evil didn't make it across the canyon, and he didn't wipe out in a spectacular crash either. It was way worse than that. He fizzled. The biggest jump of Evil's career didn't end in success, but even worse for the ticket-buying audience and for his reputation, it didn't end in a disaster either. Because the allure of an Evil Knievel event wasn't that he was going to pull off a death-defying jump. It was that he wasn't going to pull off a death-defying jump. The allure was that he was going to wipe out, crash, that his body would become spaghetti, and whatever painful contortions it made would cause the audience's jaws to hit the floor. America came to expect it. The extraordinary moment of failure happened time and time again for Evil Knievel. May 25th, 1968, Scottsdale, Arizona. A row of 15 Ford Mustangs, Evil on his Triumph T120. He crashed, broke his leg and his foot. October 13th, 1968, Carson City, Nevada. A row of 10 cars, Evil on a Honda CL350 Scrambler. He hit the top of a box truck just feet before the landing ramp, broke his shoulder and his hip. May 10th, 1970, Yakima, Washington. 13 Pepsi delivery trucks, Evil on an American Eagle 750cc. He wiped when he landed, broken collarbone, both legs snapped like twigs. And March 3rd, 1972, Daly City, California. 15 more cars, Evil on a Harley. He made the landing. When he tried to stop the bike though, he lost control. He fell and then the Harley ran over him and he broke his back. People paid to watch this stuff over and over again. And why wouldn't they? It was batshit crazy. Evil Knievel was batshit crazy. Evil Knievel was a draw. Evil Knievel had leverage. So when ABC balked at Evil's asking price to air the Snake River Canyon jump live in 1974 on Wide World of Sports, Evil took the deal to closed circuit television, and even to movie theaters, where patrons were asked to pay more than the cost of an actual movie ticket to watch his latest stunt. Part of the sell of the Snake River Canyon event was thanks to the veteran sports promoter, Shelley Saltman. Saltman was behind the worldwide closed circuit heavyweight fights between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier in the early 70s. In 1973, he got the tennis world fired up for the legendary battle of the sexes match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. But Muhammad Ali, Evil Knievel was not. He wasn't even Billie Jean King. Audiences didn't show en masse to the theater to watch Evil Knievel sail through the air over Snake River Canyon. The endeavor was a financial failure and Evil Knievel was looking down at the short end of his career. A few years later, in 1977, after a decade in which he kept his nose relatively clean while simultaneously breaking and re-breaking pretty much every bone in his body, Evil Knievel announced his retirement from the daredevil life. The announcement came after a run of successful jumps. Evil wanted to go out on top, and he would have too. If only CBS hadn't convinced him to do one last jump before he hung up the red, white, and blue helmet. It would take place at the International Amphitheater in Chicago. Evil only had to clear 64 feet, no sweat. He placed another tank of man-eating sharks below for good measure. CBS wanted one last cash grab. In 1977, 
despite the failed movie theater experiment, Evil remained a solid ratings draw on TV. But that last jump in Chicago never happened. It was rehearsal, hours before the actual jump. The TV cameras and their operators were in place to capture the rehearsal performance. It was a dry run for the entire production. Evil started the engine of his Harley. He tickled the carburetor, pulled the clutch, brought his right foot down hard on the kickstart. The Harley ran up the ramp at top speed. Evil hit liftoff, and the Harley cast a dramatic arc in the air. He could taste sweet victory. And then, he came down hard, wiped out, and spun with his bike into a working cameraman. Evil wound up with a fractured arm and a fractured collarbone. Even though both of his arms were in casts, he would walk away from this fall just like he had all the others. But the cameraman, he lost his eye. Evil was laid up in a hospital bed afterward with news microphones stuck in his face. America wanted answers. So did Evil Knievel. What even was the point of all of this? The stunts, the broken bones. What was he trying to prove? Hadn't he proved it already? Now, what was there left for him to do? Get even. That's what. One of the reporters wanted to know what Evil thought of the book that was about to be published, the one that gave a first-hand account of being on tour with America's most daring stuntman. What book Evil wanted to know? Shelley Saltman, the promoter who worked with Evil on the Snake River Canyon jump, was apparently publishing a tell-all book about Evil Knievel entitled Evil on Tour. Like Evil Knievel, Shelley Saltman's book on Evil Knievel pulled no punches. In fact, the book was all punches. Shelley, the promoter turned author, knew how to create a page turner in the same way that he knew how to sell tickets, by giving the audience what they wanted. And in this case, it was all the dirt. The book accused Evil Knievel of being a pill addict, an alcoholic, an anti-Semite, and an all-around immoral scumbag. Shelley Saltman's book on Evil Knievel even said Evil Knievel hated his own mother. What kind of low-down piece of shit hates his own mother? Evil Knievel wanted to know what kind of man would write such a thing about him. So it was time Evil Knievel endeavored upon his next piece of work, working over Shelley Saltman. Hollywood, September 21st, 1977. Evil Knievel found Shelley Saltman in a parking lot. Evil was walking a little funny. On account of both of his arms were still in casts and his collarbone was still fucked up from the Chicago wipeout. But despite all that, he managed to carry the aluminum baseball bat just fine. Shelley Saltman was trying to unlock his car. The sun was setting. It was quiet. That part of the day that turns in relative silence when the sun starts to dip down and sends the world indoors to reset for the evening. Evil Knievel broke that silence by beating a screaming Shelly Saltman to a bloody pulp with an aluminum baseball bat. Shelly fell to the ground. Evil paused and assessed the damage. Shelly was in rough shape, whimpering at Evil's feet. Evil waited for the feeling to come, the feeling of remorse. He gave it another second, but that feeling never came. So Evil Knievel choked up on the bat and beat the hell out of Shelley Saltman some more. Sunnyvale, California, October 1994 a comfort inn off of the 101 freeway. 
The cops could see that Crystal Kennedy's face was red and swollen when she opened the door to her motel room. She told him they could find the guy who hit her, just a ways down the street. He'd be belly up to the bar at the first watering hole they came across. It was her boyfriend, the 56-year-old Evil Knievel. The cops found Evil as advertised, nursing another glass of wild turkey and regaling the barkeep with one of the many tall tales from his life that he seemed to pluck from thin air. Like many of his stories, this one involved dynamite, sharks, and a few broken bones. Not necessarily in that order. Evil went peacefully with the police, just like he had back in 1977 when he turned himself in after beating Shelley Saltman to within an inch of his life. Inside Evil's car, the Sunnyville cops hit the jackpot. Guns, knives. They asked Evil if he knew it was a criminal charge in California for an ex-felon to possess concealable firearms. Evil went aggro. Didn't they hear about what had happened to Michael Jordan's dad the year before at the highway rest stop in South Carolina? killed while he slept in his own car. This whole damn country was going to seed, Evil complained, and the least anyone could do was defend himself. Plus, Evil had done his time for his attack on Shelley Saltman in 1977. His conscience was clean. For that assault, Evil spent six months in county jail in California with three years probation. And the judge found Evil's thirst for quote-unquote frontier justice to set a bad example for the young people who looked up to him. Quote, no affront justifies such retaliation, unquote, the judge said as he sent Evil to the pen. It sets a terrible example. Evil showed no remorse, zero. He'd do it again if given a chance, the beatdown and the time. He'd been ordered to pay Shelley Saltman close to $13 million in damages, but Evil was a stone from which no blood could be squeezed. He had lost his endorsement deals and nearly any and all ability to earn. No money was going out if no money was coming in. In Sunnyvale, California, Evil stood before the Santa Clara Superior Court in a red and blue star-spangled shirt. As punishment for carrying concealed weapons, the court ordered Evil to perform 200 hours of community service. Specifically, he'd be teaching the kids of Sunnyvale all about the importance of wearing helmets while riding a bicycle. Evil Knievel was the last person anyone wanted teaching their kids about safety or anything else for that matter. Because Evil Knievel wasn't a teacher. Evil Knievel was a con artist. And so, with his heroic days long behind him in the 1990s, Evil embarked upon his latest con, the one where he attempted to convince little children that he was actually a role model. His greatest con, however, that may have been just seven months before his death. In 2007, Evil Knievel announced his conversion to Christianity on a televangelism broadcast called Hour of Power which boasted an audience of more than a million people each week. During the broadcast, Evil Knievel is quite amazingly still insisting he be called evil, while at the same time proclaiming to have accepted Jesus Christ as his savior. And the date of that broadcast, April 1st, 2007, April Fool's Day. To Evil Knievel, it seemed the con was one and the same with the game, and that the game was never over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.